Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Today's guest wears a lot of impressive hats, former socceroo, broadcaster, adjunct professor, sport and social responsibility, author and human rights activist. Who else could this be but Craig Foster? Following a decorated football career as Australia's 419th Socceroo and 40th captain, Craig has become one of Australia's most respected sports people as a broadcaster, social justice advocate and human rights campaigner. Following his retirement a number of years ago, he quickly became one of Australia's most respected sports broadcasters with an 18-year triple Logie winning career with Australia's multicultural broadcaster, the SBS, as part of the World Game team, which included five FIFA World Cups and four FIFA Women's Cups, as well as the UEFA Champions League, English Premier League and domestic competitions. Today is a vocal supporter of high humanitarian intake by Australia and particularly an increased intake for Afghan refugees. I have listed a bunch of his accolades on my show notes, but really today I just want to get stuck into our topic, which is the politics of human rights. So welcome, Craig. Yeah, hi, Amber. How are you going? Excellent. So I'm going to I'm going to go back to the soccer stuff because my two sons will not forgive me if I don't ask you this. They are mad soccer players and um, they're probably the only podcast of mine that they will ever listen to is this one. So there you go. Okay. Um, they only are only nine and, and 13. So that's that, that explains that. So did you always want to be that soccer player as a kid or was there something else that the young Craig Foster thought that he may do? I was always involved in concepts of justice even when I was very small so when I was in teams you know like 11 12 13 I remember you know being very concerned if people weren't treated properly if if they weren't treated fairly whether that's teammates or other people in my immediate zone and and I was always confident enough to take up those issues didn't matter what age I was and then at, when I was playing, I, I got involved in a range of issues, particularly Indigenous rights and working on various Indigenous football programs and so on, and getting close to people, getting close to families, learning more you know, across homelessness and others. And then since I retired and also finished my law degree, then the next iteration just very naturally becomes how that you change policy, how you change public mind, and how you create social change itself. Absolutely. So for lots of people, and this is very well documented, leaving elite sport, it can often be a hard transition to normal life. It sounds like you had your plan B kind of sorted and you went on to study and you've obviously been able to recreate and have a second career. But do you remember the moment that you retired and and what those next few days, months and years felt like as you found a new purpose? Because it's very different, I guess, you know, the regimented life of of a professional sports person to, to, I guess, a civilian, if you like. Yeah, I I had a different transition to most. I was already involved, for example, in the Republic movement when I was just still a socceroo. So I was politically active. I was involved in a whole range of issues, including a bit obliquely refugees and others. 
So that was very natural. It just meant that I had more time and I moved into broadcasting. So that was a very smooth transition. I'd been throughout my career in Australia and and at some points in Asia, because I could kind of articulate myself okay on the various interviews that I was asked to do, from time to time, television stations would say, look, can you, do you want to come and do something? Can you do? So I did a little bit of TV in in Asia. And then when I was in Adelaide, also for Channel 10, I was still playing. And therefore, by the time I was getting, I was like around early 30s and my body was failing, SBS asked me to then come and work with them on the FIFA World Cup in 2002, which was a a tremendous experience. And then after that, they said, look, can you stay? You know, it's gone so well, they had huge ratings and they wanted to then open up into some greater, longer shows and more content. And I said, oh, that's perfect timing. So I was very fortunate in that way. I just kind of stepped straight from the field. As I took the boot off, I grabbed the microphone and the two were very synchronous. You know, it it just meant that I could talk about the game that I just spent all that time in, you know, that my skills that I developed as a player and the understanding, you know, suited perfectly that on-air role. So it's it was a pretty simple transition. Excellent. So getting into our topic today, how do you define human rights? And is there sort of a practical example of what it is in practice? Because some people, it might think it's just about having the equality of opportunity, no matter who you are and where you're from. In a legal and moral sense, is it more than that in your experience? Well, human rights are really simple, actually. So the answer is, uh, it is more in content and breadth but they're really simple. What happened essentially after the Second World War when literally millions of uh, humans died and, you know, we had various, uh, you know, atom bombs and other things and we saw death or people at that time saw death on a grander scale than they had, you know, in their lifetimes or throughout history. Therefore, they said, look, we need to do something about this. You know, we need to have some type of rules of engagement as to how humans across countries, across religions, across all of these boundaries about how we engage with each other. What are the minimum requirements for each of us to treat each other, what we would say in a humane way, you know, as another human? And then what are the minimum things that humans actually should have? What should we think that, you know, every person in the world, what are the, what are the basic items that they require to live a life of dignity and uh, opportunity? So it's really that simple. So the, it starts with, you know, shelter, food, and the right to education, for example. So, mm-hmm. so is that like the UN Convention of Human Rights sort of definition? Is that where we're yeah. coming from? Okay. Yeah, so what happened is the, the, there was what was called a League of Nations, and after the Second World War, they formed the United Nations, which now has over 200 members, member countries of the world, so the vast majority. And they came together and created the first universal declaration on what they called human rights at that time. It was groundbreaking. I think there was there were around 14 people on that committee from memory. Um, it was chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt of the, the United States, uh, and it had representatives, including from Australia, and it had representatives across the geographic span of the globe, but also across religion as well. There were Arabic representatives, there were Muslim representatives. That's really important. So, you know, all of uh, the, a number of religions came to that table and so many, many countries came to that table and they decided, let's try and create now, if you can imagine, put it this way, prior to that, prior to the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which was the start of it all, basically, what you would say, and you use the terms moral and ethical manner of treating each other, 
largely came out of religion. And therefore, you know, mm. do unto others as you do unto yourself in Christianity or, you know, whatever is the case for other religions, Buddhist and others. And throughout antiquity, humans saw that as, you know, uh, the, the religious principles as their uh, guidebook on how to treat other people. But of course, many of the wars throughout human history have been fought on religious grounds and religious differences. And so, they still are. <laughs> still are. Still yeah, are, absolutely. right? So religion is something that very often divides people very passionately, very strongly, and even aggressively. So what the world rightly said was, well, we need to move away from that and just have some human rules. So these aren't divine. These are not ordained by a God. These are the rules that we agree as the League of Nations, as the, you know, the countries of humanity. We're going to agree to this whole declaration and these principles as to how we're going to deal with each other now. And the reason we're doing that is to try and create greater peace, try and minimize conflict and war in future, and to uplift humans everywhere. You know, let's talk about the basics that they need. So that's where it came from. That's why I happen to think it's quite brilliant. Um, it's contested. You know, you can disagree with some of them. And of course, many religions do. Let's, you know, for instance, gender equality and the right to girls' education is one of the basic human rights. So I believe in very strongly, well, many religions don't. So what I see human rights is as a really safe space in the center of humanity and religion can revolve around that. But this core area of human life that we all agree that this is the way we should treat each other, I think actually is is the most important. Uh, Absolutely. I think you've summarized that that really well and kind of unpacked it, I guess, at, at the same time. So what prompted you to become a, a sort of a really public human rights advocate? You talk about your early experiences and always having a sense of justice and, and I guess helping different communities, particularly when you're involved in soccer. Was there a trigger for you that made this be your kind of focus? And mm. I guess what keeps you going, the second part to this, because issues like the Manus Island detainee cases, for example, just feel like in Australia they'll never go away. So how do you keep the momentum? Yeah, so for the to the first point, I was always involved in these issues. You know, for instance, I was the CEO and later chairperson of our players' association in football. And some years ago, I changed. I well, I helped the organisation and the executive to change the constitution to bring women on board for the first time on the executive. That that's basically the Socceroos and Matildas now working together, equal representation on the board. And what we saw from that is that the conversations change, that uh, women's football becomes much more important within the organisation and they go on to fight for uh, equal pay and today, you know, only a couple of years ago, they achieved that uh, with the full support of the Socceroos. So um, I was involved in, gen that's gender equality, for example, right? Yes. So, and equity, we would say gender equity means not just equality but actually also righting wrongs and bringing people up to speed rather than just saying, well, you guys are way behind, but you can now just have the same rights as we have. Equities goes further and says, well, no, it's like Indigenous Australia. Just creating the same laws for Indigenous Australians does not undo all the disadvantage that's been there for 230 years. And therefore, we need to atone and account for that. So we have to do more. We have to provide more opportunities. That's called equity. So so I, I've always been involved in what I guess the, the main trigger was I started to work with both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty as a bit of an ambassador. I, I got to understand the issues more, many of which aren't in all, you know, it's not in the front of Australians. It's not really a huge part of our culture, something I want to change. Therefore, 
many Australians, you know, aren't uh, really sure what human rights are. It sounds very legalistic. It, it, it actually is international law, so it tends to be the domain of lawyers. And then, of course, I finished my, I, I started and, and then, you know, studied human rights throughout my law degree. And that was important because I then had a better understanding of the international framework. I understood the conventions, the declarations, you know, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples all around the world, for example, was very important for me because I realised that Indigenous Australians have the same rights as Canadian Indians and, you know, Brazilian Indigenous people under international law. And and all of these, uh, they have various names from protocols to conventions to declarations, but basically they are just documents written into international law under the United Nations that countries become a signatory to. So Australia is a member of the United Nations and therefore we are asked to sign up to the new convention, which, for instance, at the moment is on climate action, has just become a human right, you know, the right to a livable planet, which I think is good, right? Absolutely. It's one of the big pillars I think we all have to focus on. Exactly. So what happens, Australia then is asked to sign up to these conventions. Now, because Australia is a dualist uh, legal system, that means when we sign an international convention or even a treaty with another country or these types of things, they don't necessarily have to be implemented in Australian law. We have domestic legislation, which can be very different. So when, for instance, uh, anti-discrimination legislation was brought in, you know, back in, I think it was the 70s, you know, that was off the back of international instruments and a a global drive for non-discrimination was very important. Uh, when it comes to refugees, for example, Australia is a signatory to the Refugee Convention back in 1951, but we then legislate most of those things away in our in our local Immigration Act simply because of politics. Mm. Politicians start to lobby to take away some of the rights of refugees they have under international law. So it was a it was a collection of things, and then a couple of years ago, I kind of got a bit of a turbocharge because I ran off to Bangkok to go and help this young Bahraini kid. And I then met, I had to meet with the UN, I had to meet with a range of countries, I had to secure the support of many organisations around the world. And in so doing, they all kind of became part of my network of change now. And so I'm connected into the global human rights network, which gives me far greater access and opportunity to make, you know, or to support and try to make change here and abroad. Absolutely. So many of us did witness that sort of constant media coverage that your role in in, in freeing footballer Hakeem Al Arabi in 2019 actually produced. And it was a bit of a relentless campaign, I imagine. I mean, you had to pull on every lever you had to keep that case front of mind because, you know, the news cycle moves on and people aren't always interested in small developments. They want to know the big developments. But reflecting on that experience, what did that reveal to you about the reality of perhaps Australia's human rights approach? Yeah, so I met many embassies and delegates from different uh, countries around the world when I was in Bangkok and uh, when I was trying to help Hakim Al Arabi. And, and it became very evident in speaking to them that there was a blockage in getting their support for Hakim. So I needed all these countries in Bangkok to turn up in the court at the court case to make statements, to lobby behind the scenes, to lobby diplomatically the Thai government, you know, to let them know, for example, that the German delegation in Thailand is not happy about the way that they're treating this refugee because international refugee passage, safe passage and travel around the world is very important to every country. And therefore, you know, they Thailand were blocking and really trampling on 
the, you know, one of the key concepts of the Refugee Convention. So I was asking them for support, and it was a very important case in that regard. You know, as a kid who had gone to another country, and all of a sudden, you know, he was trying to be a refouled, which meant Bahrain from where he fled and was given refuge in Australia, legally that is, he was made a refugee. They were then trying to bring him back to Bahrain, and that's against international law. Absolutely. You know, some, yeah, someone who's been tortured or persecuted and left somewhere and then is given refugee, refuge in another country, you can't send them back to the first country. Obviously, they're going to be harmed. So, so you know, I was saying to all these countries, listen, you know, we really need your help, Belgium, Switzerland, Germany, others, and the EU itself, who have an office in Bangkok, and they were kind of in guarded language, kind of just more or less saying to me, look, it's, you know, we'd love to help, but, you know, you guys have got a horrible record on refugees. So, you know, you're an Australian here asking us for our support, and we've been trying to ask your government to stop torturing refugees for some time through the UN. Mm. So I went to see the UN and, and you know, basically the same message was coming from a, a range of their organisations. And I said to them, look, give me your support and I commit to you that when I get back home, I'm going to raise the issue around Manus, Nauru and others and our policy and I'll, and I'll spend time, I'll commit myself to trying to change that because it's important not just for Australia but for the world. Right, any country who you know treads on these international treaties, it puts the whole framework at risk. All of a sudden, if we won't take people, well, then who's going to take them? And then USA have to step up, you know, in you know, contrary to the international legal framework. All of a sudden, uh, the UNHCR, which is the High Commission for Refugees, they have to say to US, "Look, we know that Australia should be taking them. We get that. That's what we all signed up to." But they won't take them, so we're just asking you, can you please take another 1,000 or 1,200 as it was? Or New Zealand, look, guys, we know that you have your own commitments and, you know, Australia is much bigger, got much more land and should be doing more, but they're not. They won't do it and, therefore, could you please take some? Or France or Switzerland, this is what happened. So I said to them, I'll go home and I will try and change this and get us back on track to what I would say is sane, humane policy. So that's basically... Um, you know, that was the message that was coming from around the world and rightly so. You know, Absolutely. the world is looking at us now and going, you guys have completely lost your heads. I mean, what are you actually doing? You've kept people locked up for nine years. That's just crazy. Absolutely, I agree. And I suppose it's just, it's it sounds like it's quite relentless in terms of being able to keep that, like you say, the political cycle might change. We, we may have new governments, you know, and, and new parties in charge. But I guess that mm. policy itself doesn't sound like it's moving that much. I mean, in, well, in practice, in the reality of, of what happens. No, there has been kind of circuit breakers with Medivac legislation and other things, but Australia's been stuck here for a long time for a number of reasons. But when you talk about um, motivation, you know, I know the people. So once I get to know the people, then I feel strongly enough about it, you know, that I just won't stop. But there's no, there's no point to stop. So um, I get energised by doing it. It's not as though I get fatigued because it's really difficult. No, I see it just as important mm. and um, and I'm more than happy to do it. But secondly, I also see that it's important to Australia. So, you know, I don't advocate for refugees just because I want to see these people free and that's that's absolutely true and very important. But I also think that it's one of the most important issues facing Australia at this moment in time because, you know, we can, if we, if we can as a people, as a country, look away from the torture of innocent refugees for nine years and, in fact, not even on Manus and Nauru but now locked up in the Park Hotel in Melbourne and Brisbane and elsewhere. Which only came to fame because of a certain tennis star recently. (laughs) 
That's right. And so, you know, people used to think, oh, well, it was offshore, so therefore Australians don't know about it. Out of sight, out of mind almost. Yeah. So now it's here and and yet still we're not moving. And now Novak Djokovic got detained and thrown in the same hotel as 33 refugees who are in their ninth year. And now Australians can't say at least they don't know about it. But the question is, you know, are we moving? What are we doing? So I just see it as really important to our national psyche, our culture. I think that a country should be measured by the way that it treats its vulnerable, not by the way it treats me as a privileged person. And there's few more vulnerable than refugees who, by definition, have to throw themselves on the mercy of a a different country that they don't know, often don't speak the language, and often they travel with nothing but the clothes on their back. Absolutely. So we also have a problematic human rights record in Australia when it comes to our First Nations people who have suffered and continue to suffer. And and some ABS figures, metrics around this from last year show that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners make up 30% of all prisoners in custody and 78% have experienced prior adult imprisonment. Life expectancy also is much lower than non-Indigenous Australians. How can we really rectify this relentless state of of despair, if you like, mm. and in a way that's humane, mm. but actually is something that perhaps works collaboratively with First Nations people rather than us sort of dictating what that looks like. Yeah, the first point, first answer is to tell the truth. And so you notice those who don't want Indigenous advancement constantly are talking about the national educational curriculum. And it's very important if you don't want change to maintain hegemony, maintain control of what children learn. So they always say that history is written by the the victor. Well, in this case, by the coloniser. And what that means is, you know, we, and I'm a a white Australian who is descended from England and came on the boats, uh, ironically, um, given that I'm a (laughs) refugee advocate, might be one of the reasons why. You know, and so people who control the curriculum, which is usually the government of the day, well, it's always the government of the day, are under pressure from various lobby groups all around the country to change language, change the view of certain historic events and so on. That's incredibly important. And we're still having that, if you like, wrestling match, I would say debate, but it's more a wrestling match today. And there was only in, in recent days news about Alan Tudge, who's the education minister, doesn't want you know, some of the language that's in the current curriculum or that was proposed. Now, so what you teach the next generation and all of us, in fact, the the language you use on television, uh, the way that you report in the popular media, these things are all incredibly important because we ultimately, not many people have time to sit around and read all the books in antiquity. So they generally form their view from, you know, what they digest whether from the popular media or, sadly, today from Facebook and YouTube. and <laughs> Absolutely. Which, yeah, which obviously carries, you know, even worse, a lot of misinformation and inaccuracy. So, uh, so that's important. And, and so by that I mean tell the truth. So if there was atrocities, massacres, frontier violence, then that's important. Mm. Uh, we have to know that because until we resile with what actually happened, then we can never understand where we really came from. I don't understand the reticence, the fear for doing that. I do know that there are sections of society who control power and would be perfectly willing to let Indigenous Australia stay in the, in the, in the largely disadvantaged position they're in and therefore it suits them to keep the language and, and keep history as it is. I happen Absolutely. to think 
yeah, that we just need to go to the truth. I'm not, I'm certainly not challenged by it in the sense that I want to know and that we need to account for that. And then secondly, and this is where human rights come in. So Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, have the right to self-determination. And what that means is that they have the right to organise themselves and to be involved in all decisions that pertain to them. Okay, that's really important. So uh, some Australians will say, well, you know, we give all of this money to Indigenous Australia, you know, over all these years, billions of dollars. And what I would say is no, overwhelmingly what we do is give billions of dollars to ourselves to administer on programs that we design for Indigenous Australia. That's very different to having Indigenous-led organisations where that have autonomy, that have decision-making power, and this is where the voice to parliament comes in. So, you know, uh, voice uh, treaty truth. So for Indigenous Australia, it's about um, telling the truth about what happened and then having a Makarata Commission. This is all under the Uluru Statement, which is a very, very important document. And the Makarata Commission means um, a a commission that is about firstly truth-telling and also voice to parliament. That means whenever laws being formed, changed, debated that affect Indigenous Australia, they must be at the table. And that is a basic human right of Indigenous peoples. Why, why is it necessary for that right to be there? Well, simply because they have been oppressed. There's been genocide in many countries around the world. Probably the majority that, certainly the majority that were colonised and invaded where Indigenous peoples were, you know, the incumbent, you know, so, social, cultural group. And Australia's part of that. You know, what, what happened with uh, Indigenous Australia is certainly cultural genocide. And in places like Tasmania, for example, uh, there was an official attempt to wipe out Aboriginals in Tasmania. Yes. So uh, that's, I mean, that's just something we can't deny. It has to be acknowledged well, yeah. and, and, and addressed and rectified. Well, I agree. I mean, I just think it's really simple. We first, but first, we need to know about it. So, you know, Australia has, you know, uh, had had politicians and governments that have pushed back, and media has pushed back against this for a very, very, very long time. I mean, years ago, I used to go to the Invasion Day marches in Redfern with, uh, you know, Indigenous Australia, and you know, it was still a protest march. Mm-hmm. But we've come a long way to the sense that this year, in twenty twenty two, the Australia Day was very, very different. You know, the term Invasion Day has now been accepted. It's not. It's no longer, you know, a, a kind of pejorative term. It's not people aren't getting upset about it. Just, you know, it's just now become part of the vernacular. That's important. NITV was simulcasting on Channel Ten Network on the morning of uh, what's still called Australia Day, but talking about genocide. They were talking about dispossession, talking about stolen generation. These discussions, you know, even ten years ago, were highly charged, highly contentious and confronting to many people in Australia and they're not anymore. So it does show you that social change does happen. It's too slow, but uh, it, you know, we're going, we're certainly making some headway anyway when it comes to these issues. I would imagine that you're a mentor to lots of people, but uh, I always believe no one's got to where they are without some other people helping them. Would you have one or two mentors that you'd like to shout out to and why do they make such an impact in your life and career? Well, you know, I just like to, there's many, many, many. And so I just, I'm not sure I would say mentors, but just people who I rely on. You know, I just believe that we are, 
as you say, we are not individuals. You know, I think when COVID hit, people got the first sense for many decades that, you know, we are a communal being, we are communal animal species. That, that's why we live in societies. That's why, you know, we live in communities and we have to bring back this sense of shared solidarity. And so I just, you know, surround myself with the most brilliant people, much more brilliant than I. That's the trick, I reckon, just having yeah. people around you that, you know, build you up, lift well, you up, inspire you and and make it all worthwhile. Well, I try to lift them up. You know, I just try and help them, you know, do the best job they can do and, and provide whatever, you know, tools I have to help them do their stuff. So, and, you know, just good people. That's all. Absolutely. It doesn't matter who they are. If I don't think they're a good human, if I don't think that their heart's in the right place, that they're going to actually help others and do things for the right reason, I don't care how powerful they are, how much money they are, what titles they have. I just don't spend any time for them. And, and you know, that, that's, that's why I live my life. Absolutely. If we spoke again in a year, what would be the number one thing that you hope you would have changed based on what you do today? Well, I'd like to get this refugee issue over the hill. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. That was a no-brainer, yeah. I think. Just get everyone out firstly. And then secondly, we need to start talking about a better policy. But the first thing is just unchain everyone. And, and get them out. Like that's got to happen. I, I'm sure it will, but it has to happen in 2022. These people can't go on to 10 years. That's that's just that's just well beyond. Absolutely. A final takeaway message just for us today on the politics of human rights. Um, human rights are just everyday things that we often take for granted, but many people around the world don't have them. So, you know, we've got girls go to school as a matter of course in Australia. Whereas, for instance, the Taliban just invaded Afghanistan and so all the girls there, that's, they no longer have that ability. It's a right. That's what you call a human right, to be educated. You know, plenty of people around the world don't have food. Uh, we see still a tremendous amount of, of poverty and famines from time to time, particularly during conflict and drought. You know, that's a basic human right, just to be able to fill your stomach every day. People are still homeless in Australia, even in a very wealthy Western society. We still have, I think, around 165,000 in 2021 people without a roof over their head, sleeping rough, uh, whether in cars or under bridges. Well, just having shelter over your head is a human right. And I saw a leading social commentator recently say, oh, look, you know, if you elect these people, you know, you should be aware that billionaires are going to be taxed and childcare will be free. And also, you know, there'll be social housing. Well, social housing means that everyone has the right to simply be in a safe, sheltered environment. Absolutely. No human being should ever argue against that. So whilst that commentator was using it as kind of, you know, a, a, some type of attempted negative, I responded and said, that just sounds fabulous. So these many people in the world don't have what we have. It's important that we recognise that and that we try and support them in their endeavours to get it. But I guess in the end, human rights are neutral. So you can have religious views, and many people do in Australia. Religious, We have religious freedom, which is incredibly important. Our government is not religious per se, like Iran, for example, or, or parts of the Middle East. We are secular, which means that the rule of law is what we abide by, and you can have your own religious views. But human rights sit in the middle. And in, as far as I'm concerned, they are immutable, they are universal, and no religion should touch them. And that means that every human being should be treated with dignity, um, that no one should be tortured, including refugees, that everyone should have enough to eat, that women should be able to work, 
study and do anything that men can, you know, are able to do. And that's the way the world should be. Absolutely. Well, hopefully it's not too far away. Thank you so much for your time, Craig. And if you do want to contact Craig Foster and find out a little bit more about him, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.